Hello, this episode was brought to you by Audible.com. If you want to download a free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash teacher Luke or click on one of the pictures on my website that says Audible. Now, let's get started with another episode of Luke's English Podcast and you're now going to hear me in a jingle say that you're listening to Luke's English Podcast. Um, so I don't know how many times I need to tell you that you're listening to Luke's English Podcast, but the message should be clear that you're listening to... Luke's English Podcast. Start the jingle. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. This is part three in what could turn out to be quite a long series about my recent trip around California. Normally on this podcast, I tend to focus on British things, don't I? Uh, but every now and then, I'd go travelling somewhere, and then I'd report back on what happened. And this time, I went to California on my honeymoon, as you know, if you've already listened to the previous two episodes. Uh, the itinerary for the trip was to fly to Los Angeles, then drive to Yosemite National Park, and then across to San Francisco, and then down the coast, back to Los Angeles, and then home again. And I'm back home now. And in fact, I'm definitely not in California because listen to this. I don't know if you can hear this, but have a listen. That is the sound of pouring rain outside because uh, I'm definitely back um, back here in Paris in Northern Europe. It's the same in London as far as I know. Um, and uh, yeah, the skies are grey. The water is chucking. It, the rain is just chucking down. And so, yeah, I'm definitely home. But um Anyway, I'm talking about California. You can imagine. Does it does it help if uh, if I play a little bit of uh, evocative music to try and bring the spirit of California into this episode? How about this? Oh, you can't even hear it. Where's the music? That's weird. Normally, there's music when I press. Oh, I know. I've turned the volume down. All right. How about this? Here's welcome to California. Uh, imagine yourself on some sort of open highway uh, in an open top car. <laughs> Yeah, that's more like it. Just imagine you're driving down some open sort of uh, beach highway. You've got the, uh, the ocean on one side. Uh, the palm trees are swaying in the breeze. The sun is setting in the distance. Because, you know, whenever you're in California, the sun is always setting, isn't it? You know, this is basically the Hollywood version of California. The sun's going down. It's bathing everything in a beautiful golden light. Um, and there you are driving this fantastic classic American car. Wait a minute, the music's fading out. I don't want that. Let's go back to the beginning. There we go. So yeah, the California dream is still is still going. Uh, you're driving this classic American car with the sun going down in the distance, the ocean, the, the waves are rolling, there's beautiful sand. You're sitting next to some gorgeous uh, woman with her hair blowing in the breeze. Maybe it's not, maybe it's a man, I don't know, it depends on your preference. Whatever you want, basically, this is California. It's the land of freedom and opportunity and so on. Uh, never mind the fact that, um, you know, you haven't eaten for, for six hours because you've been in the car and you're, you're desperately thirsty and you really need the toilet. No, never mind all of those things. This is California. Yes, okay. I'm just trying to create the right atmosphere and feeling here at the beginning. I'm just kind of painting a Hollywood version of it. Yes, the road is open. No traffic jams in this version. No. Um, welcome to California. All right, fine. That, that's enough of that. Let's let's be honest. We're not in California. We're, we're just. I'm sitting in front of my computer with the rain pouring down outside. But anyway, um, now um, 
in this series that I'm doing here about this California road trip, I'm telling you about the trip, but I'm also branching out in order to ramble on about the history and the culture of California and some of the differences between British and American English, as well as some other subjects. Um, At this point in the series here in episode three, I'm still just a few days into the holiday and there's plenty more stuff to cover. Um, In this episode, I'm hoping to talk about these things. I'm going to tell you about Venice Beach. Um, I'll talk about Baywatch, Segways, the grammar of telling stories and anecdotes in English, uh, some facts about the Hollywood sign, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, British and American English vocabulary related to driving, uh, the dark side of Hollywood and celebrity culture, and an analysis of the lyrics to the song Hotel California by the Eagles. Now, that is a lot of subjects to cover. I wonder if I'm going to get through them all in episode three. They might come up in episode four. We don't know. But it's a lot of stuff to deal with. So I'd better get started right away. And uh, so here we go. Right, back to the trip, back to the holiday. Um And uh, so what happened? I think we're now on something like day three, uh, Saturday. I I believe it was Saturday the 8th of August. And on this day, we decided to drive to Venice Beach, which is uh, just down the coast from the world famous Santa Monica Beach. Well, to be honest, Venice Beach is world famous too. In fact, it's part of the same beach as Santa Monica Beach. So you have Santa Monica Beach just further north um, and just further to the south, you have Venice Beach, okay? Um, And uh, Santa Monica Beach is the one that's famous for the TV show Baywatch. You remember Baywatch, it was all about David Hasselhoff and Pamela Anderson running around, wearing not many clothes, jumping into the water and saving people's lives. That was the idea, okay? I'll talk to you a bit about Baywatch again in a minute. But um, so that's the TV version of uh, Venice Beach. Uh, and Santa Monica Beach, uh, uh, you know, uh, lots of uh, sand. <laughs> it's a beach, of course, there's lots of sand. Uh, there's a boardwalk, a long boardwalk, which is basically a kind of a walkway and a cycle path that uh, you can walk along next to the beach. And there are lots of shops and cafes and bars and things. You find lots of people um, performing and busking there by the side of the boardwalk. And these are people basically who... Um, who just do public uh, street performances and they're hoping to get some money from the audience. Um, It's similar to things you see in uh, Covent Garden in London and uh, uh, maybe the South Bank along the river in London as well. You get these people doing street performances. Uh, Well, Venice Beach is where you find this, all of the buskers in, uh, in Los Angeles. And there are some really great shows. We saw these guys doing the sort of acrobatic display and they were making lots of jokes with the audience. It was really good fun. Uh, we um, we had you know lunch and coffee and stuff there. Uh, there are lots of shops selling t-shirts and hats and beach clothes and and other things. Um, there are the usual um, uh, marijuana dispensaries there on the beach, and you smell people you know smoking the stuff, which it seems to be a very common theme um, for the Los Angeles part of this uh, podcast. People vaporizing it. You still I could still smell it a lot, and there are plenty of places where. You know, if you've got a bad back, you can get some. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, we walked past an area called Muscle Beach, which is basically a big open air gymnasium where you have all of these guys who are, and girls in some cases, who are bodybuilders. So they're kind of uh, weightlifters and bodybuilders. And 
they're doing all of these, uh, they're, they're sort of lifting all these weights and using all of these weightlifting machines in order to pump up their bodies and make themselves all mus- muscular and well-built. So you see these huge guys with massive muscles lifting weights and stuff in the sunshine. Uh, it's just one of the typical things you see on the on the beach there. It's quite famous, Muscle Beach. Um, a number of famous uh, people have uh, have have sort of done their their exercises there. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger famously used to hang out at Muscle Beach and there's a film about it. There's a film about the days when he was a a weightlifter. I think it's called Pump It Up or Pumping Iron or something and uh, apparently you see footage of Arnie building himself up and kind of going, okay, let's get pumped. Let's pump it up. That's that's my Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. Let's get pumped up. (laughs) Um, that was my Arnie impression. Thanks. Uh, you're welcome. I'm here all week. Now, um, what else? Cycle paths, skate parks, lots of people skating and stuff. We did go and swim in the sea. The water, the water is nice and warm. Uh, big waves as well. Really big waves. It's quite fun to like dive into the waves and play around and stuff. Uh, there are lots of surfers there. So after spending some time in the water, we just sort of lay down on the sand, you know, put our blankets down on the sand and spent a few hours on the on the sand watching the surfers trying to catch a wave and things like that. Um, and um, let's see what else. Um, yeah, there, there are loads of people on segways and and bicycles, but segways. Now, what's a segway? Do you know what that is? Well, obviously, in terms of English, a segway is... Um, something you would say in order to link two stories together. That's a segue. Um, it's like a linking phrase or linking uh, device bet- between two different stories. But also a segue is a kind of mode of transport these days, isn't it? And it might be the most stupid invention of all time. I've got, I just have a suspicion that the segue is completely ridiculous. But anyway, let me just explain a little bit more so that you definitely know what it is. I'm sure that most of you are familiar with it, but there might be some who just need an explanation. So imagine it's like a little platform that you stand on and on the sides of the platform, there are fairly large wheels and coming up from the platform is a uh, like a, a metal bar and, and at the top of that, there are some handlebars. I think you have to hold the handlebars, but I'm not sure. I think it's possible to ride it without holding them. Um, and the idea is that it's quite cleverly made because um, in order to control it, all you need to do is like lean. You just lean forwards, lean back, lean left and lean right. I think that's how it works. So if you want to go forward, you just sort of lean forwards and the Segway moves forwards. If you want to go faster, you just lean further forwards. If you want to slow down, you lean back. If you want to go left, you lean left. If you want to go right, that's it. You lean right as well. It's, it's not rocket science. There's a phrase that I use a lot, isn't it, these days? Anyway, um, it's pretty simple to use the Segway. Just le- it just involves a lot of leaning, and the Segway does the work. Now, is this the most stupid invention of all time? Here's my case for, for why it is the most stupid invention of all time. Uh, well, it's a bit of an exaggeration. It's certainly a bit of a silly invention, in my opinion. Now, do we really need it? What, you know, what was the... What was the uh, what uh, what was the person thinking who came up with this idea? Were they thinking right? What we really need, and what the what the uh, what people obviously don't have, is some way of propelling us forwards at just a few miles an hour, like maybe walking speed, but with the ability to go slightly faster, like maybe running speed, 
while facing forwards so that we can see where we're going, uh, with our hands free if necessary so that we can hold on to coffee or mobile phones. How on earth can we achieve this? Well, how about our legs? Maybe our legs could, could do the job. Maybe we could just walk or jog or run. No, don't be ridiculous. What we need is an, a new invention for people to buy. And the Segway was born, bringing human laziness to new levels. And you thought escalators and moving walkways were bad enough. Now we've got the Segway, all right? I don't mean to have a go at escalators because obviously they're pretty useful, but they do seem to encourage a certain amount of laziness in people, escalators. You know, that's where um, in the train station there's a staircase and the staircase is usually completely empty because everyone's queuing up to get on the escalator. So they're willing to waste time in their day standing in a queue, which may be one of the worst things one of the most boring things you can do, standing in a queue. Even in even in a British queue, in a great British queue, it's still a boring experience to have to stand in one uh, in order to line up to stand f- even longer on a moving platform that takes you up the stairs. You might as well just use your legs and go up the stairs. It's good for you. It's exercise. Um, but uh, so not, it's not just the escalator or the moving platform. It's now the Segway as well that's part of this trend. Um, so... Um, so I think it's very hard to look cool or even look dignified in one of these things or on one of these things, to be exact. I imagine that there are some people even who cruise around on a Segway all day doing their shopping, for example, and then they go to the gym at the end of the day in order to run on a treadmill in order to stay fit. Something doesn't make sense here. Okay. Um, all right. So Fair enough, the Segway doesn't produce harmful emissions, but neither do your legs. Sure, a person can fart, and that is a kind of an an emission, but you can still fart on a Segway too, so it's basically the same thing. So maybe it's for people with mobility issues, maybe that's the problem, maybe that's the point, but I don't think so, because it seems that in order to use a Segway, you still need to be able to use your legs. You need you need to have the full use of your legs in order to stand on the Segway the whole time and balance properly. So I'm not I'm I'm sure it must be useful for something, like maybe doing some specific jobs, but it does seem a bit silly to use one when you can just use your legs to do exactly the same job. Um, it seems like reinventing the wheel to me, which is a phrase by the way. To reinvent the wheel is a phrase that means to just invent something that's not necessary. To, to kind of invent a, a device or a system which isn't necessary because something else is already doing it fine to reinvent the wheel. So it feels like they're reinventing the wheel with the Segway because we've already got our legs. Maybe that's what... Maybe what I should do is introduce a new innovation. Um, maybe that's what I can... Maybe I can target Segway owners uh, with a new innovation. And here's my advertising pitch for my new innovation. It goes like this. Introducing a new innovation in green, personal, healthy transport. Introducing legs. That's right, the legs. You're born with them. They're just attached to your body. Uh, Oh, that's the problem, isn't it? That's the whole problem, that you don't don't need to buy them because you've already got them. Yeah, I can see where it falls down. It's it's not a very good business plan, is it, the whole leg thing? Because you just get them free when you're born. Most of us do, anyway. Um, yeah, so maybe that's the attraction with the Segway. It's just another luxury item that people can spend their money on. 
I mean, they look pretty cool, I suppose. You get like off-road segways that have big fat tyres that you can use to travel off-road. But come on, it's ridiculous. You can do exactly the same. That's why we have legs. Um, anyway, um, so we went to the beach. Uh, did I say that already? Went and did some swimming. Uh, beautiful beaches covered in pristine bleached sand big waves and stuff. We watch the surfers. Um, now, on the beach, they do have lifeguards. They do have these lifeguard huts um, where you get lifeguards sitting there watching, you know, people, watching the beach and so on. Um, so the lifeguards did look exactly like Baywatch, but that's where the similarity to Baywatch ends. Yes, it was a beach. There were lifeguards in huts, but there wasn't the same level of drama that I expected. Now, you remember Baywatch, don't you? Baywatch was was essentially, um, uh, it, it was, when it was on TV, probably the most successful television program around the world. Why was it so successful? Well, basically because it was, it just featured a bunch of sexy half-naked people running around in skimpy outfits, didn't it? I mean, either it was uh, David Hasselhoff running around in a pair of shorts with his hairy chest um, and his six-pack and stuff, or it was Pamela Anderson... Also, either running around, uh, diving into the water, or or taking a shower um, in another skimpy swimsuit. Um, not that there was anything wrong with it, but that's what it was. Um, not the most realistic portrait of uh, the life of a, a lifeguard. I'm sure that lifeguards um, probably do more life-saving, or maybe even less life-saving than they did in the show. Uh, because in the show, all they seem to do is just run in slow motion along the beach. Now, how is that helpful? How is that helpful? If you are in the water and you're having a problem, like maybe there's a bit of seaweed around your leg, which is usually that's usually the issue, isn't it? Uh, or there's a shark or something like that. And you're screaming, help, help. And uh, David Hasselhoff is on the beach and he hears you. Um, what you really need is someone to very quickly jump into the water the last thing you want is for them to run along the beach, like along the edge of the water in slow motion. It's like, no, you need to be faster than that. And why are you running along the beach? You should be running into the water to save me. I don't know. I never really understood that. Um, um, and, and also, um, I wonder if, if Pamela Anderson would have made the, the best lifeguard. Um, I mean... And what I'm saying is that, well, she probably didn't need that that orange floaty thing because she kind of, she was already endowed with floaty things. That was a joke. Uh, yeah. Well, there you go. But it, for some reason, it, she always ended up like diving into, uh, diving into the water and the camera was always positioned in a very convenient location so that you could see, you know, uh, everything that I imagine the audience wanted to see. Um was that swimsuit the ideal piece of clothing as well for 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 the job that she was doing? All of that running, all of that athletic running in such a low-cut swimsuit, I'm sure that she could have worn something more practical. And it's amazing, really, the the way that uh, the swimsuit managed to stay in the right, everything stayed in the right place while she was doing all that athletic jumping around. It's the magic of of, of television, I suppose you could say. I mean, if you dive into the ocean from a boat uh, wearing a swimsuit like that when you're built in the way that Pamela Anderson is built surely surely it's going to be an impractical process 
don't know. Maybe it's just a bonus if you're a, like a you know a teenager and and you know you're having a problem in the water and Pamela Anderson leaps towards you wearing next to no clothing, then that's probably going to help your mental state. You're going to feel less stressed, I suppose. And if you're a girl, you know, similarly, you could hold on to David Hasselhoff's chest hair. Uh, you know, it's, it's better than having like a a, a, a perfectly shaped, clean shaven uh, man with, you know, a man with no chest hair. You're going to want the chest hair to hold on to it. That could be the difference between, you know, survival and, and, and not survival. Anyway, um, so there it is, Baywatch, um, a show which uh, I imagine was single-handedly responsible for bringing a whole generation of young teenagers into puberty. Uh, and I say single-handedly, uh, there's no pun intended there. Actually, there is. You'll have to rewind that part of the podcast if you want to understand specifically what I'm talking about. Um, anyway, Baywatch. So, in fact, the beach was pretty normal. I mean, the people looked pretty normal. Um, um, it wasn't just hundreds of David Hasselhoffs and Pamela Andersons everywhere. Except, of course, for me and my wife, of course. Um so after our time at the beach, um, we decided to do a spot of shopping. So we went to this huge outlet mall. Now, you know, in America, they have these huge shopping malls. Um, well, in Los Angeles, there are a few of them. We went to one that's an outlet mall. Basically, an outlet is where um, certain branded clothing companies sell their products at a slightly cheaper price because they've got you know, too much stock, so they need to sell it off slightly cheaper. And they have these huge malls that are exclusively for this kind of shopping. So we went to this outlet mall, and the place was uh, huge, and it looked exactly like Bowser's Castle from Super Mario Brothers. You know, that kind of fake castle type thing. It looked like a big castle, like Bowser's Castle, in fact. Totally fake modern place that was vaguely like a castle with a huge castle courtyard in the middle of it. Um, and um, it, was, uh, it, it was an incredibly sort of luxurious place, really, with these big marble toilets and acres of space and fountains and things. Um, it was like being in sort of ancient Rome or something like that. Um, but we did some shopping. I got a couple of bargains on some jeans. In fact, I bought four items, a few pairs of jeans and a pair of jeans for my wife. Four items in this outlet mall in the States was actually the equivalent price to just one pair of jeans back home. So it was a really good deal. Um, and um, that evening I took the wife out for a nice romantic dinner. We went to uh, a restaurant um, in sort of just in the hills in Hollywood, a Japanese restaurant called Yamashiro, which uh, um, has got like a lovely Japanese garden in front of it and a beautiful view of the whole city. Um, so we had a nice romantic candlelit dinner with this stunning view of the city. Uh, the, the restaurant was amazing. The Japanese food is absolutely delicious because they have a lot of sushi there uh, on the West Coast. Um, and um, really great restaurant, which had this it was all Japanese, but with an American sort of feel to it. So you had all of the nice Japanese gardens and sliding doors and everything, but then loads of space and comfort like they have in the in the States. So it's like this weird fusion between American and Japanese styles, but it was really great. And the food was amazing, like really good sushi. It was delicious. Um, and... Um, and so, and so there you go, right? Now, at this point, I'm, I'd just like to stop in order to uh, talk a little bit about grammar. Yeah, that's right. Now, don't go to sleep or anything. Um, 
uh, because this will be useful, I'd like to just um, make a note about the tenses that I'm using in this episode. So the verb tenses. Um, usually when you're describing what happened in the past, you use past tenses, don't you? We basically have three narrative tenses. Do you know what they are? You probably do. Um, past simple, uh, which is obviously something like, you know, we ate dinner. There you go, of course. Uh, past continuous, we were eating dinner. And then past perfect, which would be we had eaten dinner. Um, so these are the three tenses that we use when we're telling a story in the past. We use them in different combinations to help us sequence the events in an interesting way. Um, so far in this podcast, I think I've been using past tenses um, when talking about what we did. I think so. I haven't actually been paying attention to the tenses I've been using. I've just been paying attention to trying to describe what I did. But I imagine that for the most part, I've been using past tenses. But now, as I'm continuing to read the notes that I made during the trip, so, you know, I made all of these notes on a mobile phone at the end of the day. Um, I've noticed that when I wrote it all, I wrote it in present tenses for some reason. And it feels tempting also when I'm telling the stories to slip into the present tense while I'm reading my notes. Well, why is this? Um, well, this, is, this sometimes happens when we tell stories that we want to make engaging, captivating and in the moment. Okay, we sometimes will slip into present tenses. Past tenses accurate, accurately report past events. But present, uh, but part, te- yeah, I'll start that sentence again. Okay, so I haven't had a cup of tea, you see, today. That's the problem. Um, now, what was I saying? Past tenses accurate, accurately report past events, but past tenses can be quite remote because they place the action in a finished time period. Um, and when people tell long stories, they sometimes slip into present tenses in order to avoid the, the remoteness of past tenses and to make the action and events seem more real and captivating, right? Also, um, using present tenses to tell stories and anecdotes is more common in spoken English. Um, in written English, it can be frowned upon, which means that some people don't like it. They frown upon it. To frown is when you sort of, when your eyebrows or your brow goes down because you don't like something. Hmm, no, we don't like that. Frowning. It's like the expression on your face is to frown. And if something is frowned upon, then it means that people don't really like it. So, for example, in written English, sometimes it can be frowned upon to um, use present tenses to tell past stories. But really, I think the main thing when writing is that you stick to one perspective. You either choose present tenses or you choose past tenses throughout your story. Um, now, for example, um, a person at a dinner party might begin telling a story about their holiday using past tenses, but then they might subconsciously switch to present tenses to make the events more immediate, and that is considered okay. But if a novelist writes a story and some of it's in past tenses and other bits are in present tenses, then it's usually considered to be sloppy writing, unless it's obviously a stylistic choice. So what I'm saying is that you might notice some moments in my account of my holiday where my tenses move from past tenses to present tenses. And this is, this is more acceptable in spoken English than it is in written English. And as my podcast is presented to you as primarily a form of natural spoken English, that should account for it. Okay. Um, is that clear enough? What 
actually, what I think I'll do is I'll just give you now uh, an example of using past tenses and using present tenses to tell a story. And you can just get a sense of the difference in impact. Okay. So for example, if I use the past tenses, it could be, so um, my wife and I were sitting in the Japanese restaurant. We were eating our sushi and we were looking at the view. It was very romantic and wonderful. And then suddenly uh, a, a bunch of ninjas dropped down from the ceiling and uh, started fighting everyone. But, re- but luckily I'd already spent three months in the jungle in the mountains, learning the ways of Chinese Kung Fu. And so I fought them all and I dealt with the situation. Everything's all right. And my wife was like, oh my God, you're my hero. Obviously a very realistic story. There you go. So I was, we were sitting in the restaurant and sudden, we were eating our dinner and suddenly some ninjas jumped down from the ceiling. But I dealt with them all because I had spent three months in the mountains learning Chinese Kung Fu. Okay, now that's the past tense version. Let's do the same thing in the present tense. And you can see how it somehow brings you into the story a little bit more. So there we are. We're sitting in the restaurant. Okay, we're sitting there. We're having a lovely romantic dinner. Uh, the candles are burning. We're eating our sushi and it's, it's fantastic. There's a beautiful view just through the window. And it's a really great moment in our honeymoon. And then suddenly I hear a noise up uh, above us and I look up and there's a big bunch of ninjas and they all jump down and they surround us. I don't know why, maybe just, you know, uh, they wanted to uh, ask me some questions about Luke's English podcast. I didn't stop to, uh, oh, I've slipped into the past tense. (sighs) It's complicated this, isn't it? (laughs) So anyway, we were sitting. No, there's past tense as well. Oh God, edit. Okay, so here's the present tense version. So, okay, so we're sitting at the table. We have we're having our dinner and uh, it's all very romantic and we're eating sushi and it's, you know, we're looking out at the view and it's a really special moment in our honeymoon. And suddenly a bunch of ninjas drop down and surround the table. But I leap up because I've already, you know, I've, I've done training. I've, I've done my training with, uh, uh, with uh, Bruce Lee in the mountains and I beat them all up and, um, and I save and, and I, you know, I save the day and everything's okay. You see, so using present tenses sometimes brings it more into the moment. I, ho- I hope that you got that. I hope you managed to pick that up. Um, also, we tell jokes in the present tense sometimes. We tell the plot of movies in the present tense and the plot of TV shows in the present tense and things like that. Um, slipping into present tenses when telling a story is usually a subconscious thing, I think, rather than a planned thing. I think people just end up using present tenses when they're... Um, recounting events as they actually happened. So let's see if it happens to me while I continue to tell you this story. Just see if you can pay attention. Do I end up slipping into the present tense? Um, I might do. And now you know why. Um, Just another point. um, This habit of slipping into present tenses that I'm talking about, this doesn't mean that you don't need to use past tenses anymore. No, it's not some kind of loophole which you can use to avoid making sentences with complex past tenses. This is not just a way for you to completely avoid having to deal with irregular verbs and past participles and auxiliary verb conjugations and things. No, it's, it's, it's not. So if you get a grammar test at school about narrative tenses, or maybe if you're doing part of a Cambridge exam in which you have to write a story 
and you use present tenses, then you can't just justify it to the teacher or the examiner by saying, but sir, but sir, which is obviously how you speak to a teacher. But sir, sir, I was just using present tenses to make the story more immediate, like Luke said. Well, sorry, it doesn't really work like that. You still need to master past tenses before you can abandon them in certain cases. So you need to know the rules before you can break them. You need to have full control of the language in order to make these subconscious shifts in tone. So keep studying those past tenses, practicing and being mindful of how you're using them. And if you want to listen to a podcast episode about using past tenses, past simple, past continuous and past perfect, to tell stories, then you can just check out episode 29, which is called Mystery Story Narrative Tenses. It's one of the most commonly listened to episodes of my podcast. It's a popular one. Um, And episode 29 features a short story with Doctor Who um, and a full explanation of how to use narrative tenses properly, uh, some pronunciation drills and everything else. Okay, so you can check that out. Uh, Episode 29, Mystery Story, Narrative Tenses. You can click on a link here on the web page if you want to. Um, All right, so, so you can study these tenses directly you know, using grammar books or using other things like episode 29. Or alternatively, you, you know, just don't worry about it too much. And instead, just let the words in in this episode and other situations, just let the words wash over you and focus instead on the general meaning of what I'm saying to you. And just imagine yourself in the story and just focus on the meaningful content. And um, because the more natural and contextualized English you hear... Um, uh, the better it is for your acquisition of grammar at an almost subconscious level, creating that sense of instinct for what is correct or incorrect usage. So what I'm saying is two ways of studying grammar. One way is to study it directly using your grammar books and other things like that. And the other way is just to focus on the message and just listen to what I'm saying. And all of the grammar will be going in and your brain will be sort of categorizing it all. Um, And then that will develop that sense of instinct and, and so on. Okay. Right, so that's the end of the grammar. You can come back to the story now. Let's carry on. Sunday, what happened? Well, we had our breakfast. Uh, That was interesting. (laughs) Of course we did. And then we took a drive up into the hills because we decided to go for a trek. So I'm still using past tenses. I've probably become self-conscious about it now. So I'll probably stick to past tenses because I know that I'm doing it now. But If I get carried away with the story, then who knows, I might end up using present tenses. But you can just see, can't you? So the whole time in LA um, felt pretty... I felt this weird sense of déjà vu. You know what déjà vu is? It's a French phrase, but they don't use it that much in French. It's a French phrase that we use in English. So déjà vu is that feeling that you've seen it before. Um, So I kept getting this sense of déjà vu. Now, this was, of course, because of the of the films and movies that I'd seen, but more specifically because of playing the computer game Grand Theft Auto V, which is set in a city which is very accurately modelled on Los Angeles, right down to lots of small details. Basically, the main things that you can do in the main areas of Los Angeles are all replicated in Grand Theft Auto V. So I felt exactly like I was in a version of Grand Theft Auto V a lot of the time. It is an amazing game because it's so realistic. 
And they've managed to copy Los Angeles so well that it captures the same atmosphere, the same kinds of landscapes, the same sorts of people and cars that you see. So I felt like the whole time I was in Grand Theft Auto 5. And, and in GTA 5, you can even go on a trek up into the hills. You can go mountain biking um, and and lots of other things. So um, it really felt like I was in a computer game some of the time. Really, really weird feeling. Uh, we stopped off at a pharmacy on the way to get some supplies. The pharmacy is vast, absolutely huge. I think you get the idea that everything in the US is big. They have big cars, big buildings, big beds, big meals, big people. That's right, big people. Although, to be honest, um, we didn't see many of these huge, fat, stereotype Americans that we all hear about. I think that's probably because in California, people are generally a, a lot healthier. But still, people in general are larger in the USA than they are in the UK, for example. Um, so we took our trip up into the hills in order to go for a trek, to go for a long walk. Um, and so I parked the car and we begin our trek into the hills around the back of the Hollywood sign. It's very dry. Um, in fact, the whole state is on a high alert for forest fires. In fact, there are fires burning in various parts of the state all the time. If you look on the news and if you check, um, you know, the fire maps, there are Google fire maps, which allow you to keep a track on where the fires are burning in different parts of the world. And there are fires burning all around California, even now. Big forest fires that they're struggling to put out. It's a real crisis because there's no water in California. Um, the place has been experiencing a severe drought uh, for years. And in Los Angeles, they in fact redirect water from hundreds of miles away in the Colorado River Basin. That's where they get their water from. And they transport it for hundreds of miles into um, Los Angeles. Uh, the water then gets used by rich people in Beverly Hills to spray in their gardens to keep their lawns green. So it's pretty crazy, isn't it, really? Um, welcome to Los Angeles, basically. So Los Angeles is a city with a little mountain range that runs through the middle of it. Uh, so there are different valleys in the city and there's a there's kind of a range of mountains. Okay, they're not really mountains, they're more like hills. Um, and if you like hiking a bit, then it's worth going up into these hills and you can go walking and you can see views of the city. So we walked up, it was very hot and stuff, but um, you know we brought lots of water with us and walked up into the hills and you do get... Um, you, you do get um, amazing views of the city uh, sprawling away on both sides. And it's an absolutely huge city. There's the downtown area with the skyscrapers. But then the rest of the city's just arranged in these big lines. And you can see the big uh, highways with all the lines of cars, you know, stuck in traffic jams and stuff. Um, so we did a mild hike, not a particularly strenuous one, uh, a mild hike behind the Hollywood sign. So you can, you walk up, one hill over a ridge and you walk along the, the the top of the hills and then you end up going behind the Hollywood sign and you walk behind it and then back down the the right hand side of the sign. So we got some really interesting views of the Hollywood sign. You know what I'm talking about, the big uh, white uh, letters on the hillside that say Hollywood. Um, so we got views of the sign. Now the Hollywood sign is actually quite interesting. 
here are, in fact, quite a f- uh, here are a few quick facts about the Hollywood sign. Okay, so the sign itself is about forty-five feet high, and it was originally built in 1923, when at that time it was put up as an advertisement for a huge real estate company selling top quality real estate. That's land in Hollywood. So at the time, you know, it, it was still. Uh, not well obviously it wasn't as populated then as it is now and uh, there were real estate companies selling off this top quality land and so they advertised it by putting up a big sign uh, on the hillside saying this is where you can buy the land and the company at the time was called Hollywood Land and in fact the sign didn't it didn't used to just be Hollywood it used to be longer it used to say Hollywood Land in order to advertise the company selling the real estate but uh Obviously, the land part has been removed, um, um, and the sign fairly quickly became an icon of the region of Hollywood and everything that it represents. That's the glamour, the movies, the fame, etc. In 1932, tragically, a young actress called Peg Entwistle committed suicide by climbing up the sign and jumping from the letter H, falling to her death. Apparently, she was depressed because she couldn't make it as an actress in Hollywood. She travelled to Hollywood in order to become an actress and she didn't make it. She became despondent. And how did she choose to end it all? She jumped off the top of the letter H. So, and, and ironically, her death made her quite famous and people still know her name today. The sign uh, used to be covered in light bulbs. It was covered in light bulbs so it would light up at night which must have looked pretty cool when it was turned on. But apparently the bulbs didn't last long um, and they were, you know, it was too expensive to keep the thing illuminated. So the bulbs were eventually removed. Uh, the sign has been repaired lots and lots of times and almost completely rebuilt in the 19 vo- in 1940s. But in 1978, it was again in such bad condition that uh, <laughs> it was in such bad condition that the letter O fell off and it tumbled down the hill and also some arsonists set fire to one of the letter L's. Um, so it was in terrible condition. So the city decided to... Um, the, the city decided to repair it and it cost over $250,000 to do that. And who came up with most of the money? Well, it was Hollywood's celebrity class. In fact, Playboy owner Hugh Hefner was one of the main contributors, and he organised a big party at the Playboy Mansion in order to provide the money. Also, rock star Alice Cooper provided money to help to repair the letter O. Um, And so uh, the sign was replaced in 1978, and while the work was being done there, there was no sign for three months. Um, The sign is now owned and protected by the city of Los Angeles, and there is quite an advanced security system which monitors the sign 24 hours um, a day up there. Um, In fact, you can't actually get close to the sign. There's a big fence around it and a big telegraph aerial that's also protected, and there are big signs that say it's a crime to trespass on private property. Um, So... um, you can you can get around the back like we did, and uh, but really from the back you only get to see the letters H O. So there's just a huge ho um, on the side, um, and when you hike around to the front, then you can see it pretty well and it looks really cool. And again, it's amazing to actually see something that you've seen so many times on television. 
But again, it's not just the power of television, this whole thing. It's also a great location with some really attractive landscape and a really good view of the city below and a good healthy hike in the mountains. Well, I say mountains, they're hills, really. Um, We ended up quite far from the car because we parked the car on one side and we walked all the way around. And when we ended our hike, we were actually miles away from our car and we got lost in the winding streets under the sign. See, in in that area, there are lots of little winding streets. It's really, really beautiful. And there are lots of properties nestled in the hills. These are really, really attractive places, which are no doubt super expensive, although they're not the most expensive parts of Los Angeles. I think that's places like Bel Air and uh, Beverly Hills. But some really attractive properties there in the Hollywood Hills. Um, So we had to keep walking until we got mobile phone reception. And then uh, we just called an Uber, which brought us back to the car. And Uber is like so useful in so many places and quite affordable, like cheaper than taxis. So Uber saved the day and just brought us back to our car. Um, And it just showed us that, you know, life in Los Angeles is all about life in a car. You can't survive in that city unless you've got a car. Nobody walks around. The place is so big um, that everyone just lives in their cars all the time. And you never really drive over about 60 miles an hour um, because there's so much traffic. So, you know, you end up just crawling through traffic a lot of the time, which is a bit miserable. I mean, all of those traffic jams, they're a real drag. Um, It's a pity, really. And I wonder why there are so many powerful sports cars in Los Angeles, because you never really drive over about 50 or 60 miles an hour. And it kind of sums up the ridiculousness of the place a lot, really. It's more about show and image than it is about practical living, for some people anyway. Um, you know, it's, these sports cars, they're, they're a bit sort of impotent, really, because they're just there for the image, and no one ever really drives them fast. Um But uh, there are plenty of ordinary people living in Los Angeles as well who drive ordinary cars and who do all the ordinary business of of living there. But there also happen to be plenty of rich movie industry people there too, rock stars and their children as well. In fact, one of those rock stars is Anthony Kiedis. Is that how you say his name? Anthony Kiedis or Anthony Kiedis? from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He's the lead singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He used to live in the Hollywood Hills and he sang about Hollywood uh, and the Hollywood Hills a lot in his music as well. In fact, now uh, I'd like to recommend another audiobook download for you. Um, So here's another bit of promotion for Audible. That's that company that provides loads of audiobooks. Um, and basically they're giving you the chance to sample their service for 30 days, and that includes a free download of any book uh, that you like. Um, So here is another California-related book that you could get, and it's it's called Scar Tissue by Anthony Kiedis, the lead singer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Um, and this is his autobiography. Um, And the Chili Peppers have an amazing story, They're originally from Los Angeles, although the members may have been born in different places, but really they started in Los Angeles. And now they've been going for about three decades, uh, over three decades. Um, They've been through numerous different guitarists, various lineups, but the the core members of the band are Flea, the bass guitarist, and Anthony, the the singer. Um, And 
the band as a whole has been through so many different complications, ups and downs, deaths even, and near deaths, epic highs and devastating lows, and yet they're still going strong. Anthony himself, um, and he's the, the principal, obviously it's his autobiography, because so this is his story, but it also tells the story of the band. Anthony himself was a heroin and cocaine addict during much of his career, and in this book, he tells his own very personal story of growing up in Los Angeles and his experiences of, first of all, living with his dad, who was basically a drug dealer to the rich and famous in Los Angeles. And Anthony uh, lived with his dad as a child. And then he talks about struggling for years with his experimental band, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and doing intense live performances, which were sometimes delivered naked on stage uh, and developing their funk rock style sound, which ultimately catapulted them onto the world stage as um, as the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And you can hear exactly what it was like, and you can listen to descriptions of all the complicated things that went along with that stardom. It's a powerful story. It's full of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but also it's a genu- genuinely moving and candid account of Anthony's success, his strengths, his weaknesses, his friendships, his personal hardship, uh, uh, the music business, his addiction and his eventual recovery from addiction. Uh, if you want to know what it's really like to be a world's famous mu- uh, music superstar, then you've got to read this book. Okay, the, the book is an international bestseller and you can download the audiobook version from Audible. Just You can get it free by um, going to audibletrial.com forward slash teacherluke or just click one of the Audible buttons on my website. You can search for Scar Tissue, um, and that's enough. Just just write Scar Tissue, and you'll find the book. I recommend it. It's a, it's a really great story. Um, so, now, let's, let's have a look at some British and American English. We are now 48 minutes into this particular episode. This is the first time I've dealt with British and American English in this series. I've done stuff on British and American English before in the podcast, um, but let's let's start talking about um, that subject in this episode now. 48, nearly 50 minutes in. There's just never enough time to do what I want to do in these episodes, but that's all right. There's lots of time. I'll just do another one um, and uh, we can deal with the rest of everything in that episode. Is that clear? Should be clear. So as you are well aware, there are broadly speaking two types of English. There's there's, there's American English and then there's good English. I mean, British English. Obviously, that's just a joke. Uh, I'm not one of those Brits who has a problem with American English or anything. No. Um, there's British English, there's American English. They're both equally valid, in my opinion. There are also other types of English too, of course, like English in Australia, in South Africa, in Ireland, in India, and so on. Um, but probably the two dominant forms are American English and British English. Um so, one question is, can Brits and Americans understand each other? Well, yes, they can, definitely. Except for some slight misunderstandings, sometimes there's really no problem in understanding each other. Um, really, the differences are, the differences between American English and British English can be summarised as differences in the accents, the vocabulary, the spelling, some grammar, and also the culture or the communication style. Um, there are definitely some differences in vocabulary, and sometimes these cause misunderstandings. For example, um, 
for example, I was in a f- I was in a shop in the States and I said to someone, excuse me, are you in the queue? And the woman just looked at me like she didn't know what I was talking about. I said, sorry, are you in the queue? And then I worked out the problem was was that I was using the word queue because they don't say in the queue, they say in line. So I said, sorry, are you in line? And then she understood what I was talking about and everything was fine. Um, so there's an example, not in the, in, a, in the queue, but in line. Um, so the vast majority of the words that we use are exactly the same, but there are differences that are worth knowing. And these differences may be more obvious when you're talking about specific systems Uh, For example, our political and legal systems are a bit different, so we've developed different terms to talk about them. But in general English, there is a relatively small group of keywords that are different, and it's, it's worth knowing all of them. And I'm going to go through a lot of those words with you in this series of episodes. I'm going to start soon. I think I'm going to cover some now at the end of this episode. Um, in terms of culture, although... Um, Although the Brits and the Americans speak the same language, we don't necessarily think in the same way. And this can cause some problems in communication. For example, Brits tend to be a bit more indirect in their use of language as a way of being polite, diplomatic and tactful. Um, now, that can seem that can make our messages, our messages seem a little bit more complicated as we use more hedging language but we see it as being more respectful and considerate. We don't want to seem bossy or aggressive or too direct, but the Americans might take that as being weak or unclear or even unsincere. And that's not just the Americans. In fact, you know, people, when they deal with the Brits, sometimes find us a little bit difficult to read or difficult to understand because there is a certain level of distance that we create with our language. For us, it's positive because we're being nice and respectful. But for some other people, including Americans sometimes, it seems to be a bit unclear and um, almost a bit patronising or something, or maybe even insincere. For example, you know, the Brits might say things like, sorry, I was wondering if you could, or I think there might be an issue. Instead of saying, could you do this, or there's a problem with this, okay? So one of the things is that Brits might be less direct than the Americans. But I'm not saying that all Americans are direct all the time, because obviously there are plenty of indirect Americans. But in my experience, I think there is truth in what I'm saying. And if you want some more evidence, then you can read an article that I found on Forbes.com, written by a Brit who's done lots of business communication in America. The link is there on the website. Um... The, the name of the article is Lost in Translation, Overcoming the Language Barrier as a Brit in America. But there's a link here on the web page for this episode. You can click it and you can read his account of the communication problems he had as a, an indirect Brit living in a slightly more direct culture in the USA. So there is a bit of difference in communication style and culture, despite the fact that we speak the same language. The old saying which sums up this situation is that... Uh, Britain and America are two nations separated by a common language, which I think was said originally by George Bernard Shaw, who was an Irish playwright and one of the founders of the LSE. Uh, That's not the London School of English. That's the London School of Economics. So George Bernard Shaw, who was one of the founders of the London School of Economics, and he was a playwright and stuff, he said, Britain and America are two nations separated by a common language, which basically means, well basically means that although we speak the same language, 
we are still different in our culture, in our way of thinking, and even just in our way of communicating. Um, so another thing, another difference could be the accent as well, or accents. So accent or dialect can cause problems in communication between Brits and Americans, particularly stronger regional accents. Now, to be honest, I think that this is more of a problem for Americans understanding British people and other forms of English too, like, as I said, Australians, South Africans, Irish people, and so on. I think the Americans tend to find this to be more of a problem than the Brits do. I think that the average British person would probably understand most American dialects and accents, but the average American might have trouble with some local British dialects. For example, in the USA, they often, in fact, require subtitles on television when someone with a strong non-American accent is speaking. For example, it could be a British footballer from Liverpool or something like that. Uh, now, I've actually seen interviews on American television with the actor Colin Farrell. Um, he's Irish. I've seen interviews with Colin Farrell on American TV that had subtitles to help the Americans to understand what he was saying. Now, he's Irish and he does have a fairly strong accent, but it's not extraordinarily difficult to understand, in my opinion. But apparently it was necessary to provide subtitles for the American viewers, even though he was speaking English. Um, however, I doubt that a UK audience would need subtitles for an American, even if they had a strong accent from pretty much anywhere in the country. I think this is because in the UK, we are exposed to lots of American English from TV and films, even the really colloquial stuff. But British English is comparatively less known in the USA due to lack of exposure. Um, yeah, so the Brits and Americans also spell some words differently, as I'm sure you're aware. For example, things like the word colour in the UK, it's C-O-L-O-U-R. In America, it's C-O-L-O-R. And theatre, which in the UK is T-H-E-A-T-R-E. And in the States, it's T-H-E-A-T-E-R. And there are some slight differences in grammatical usage, but that's less obvious and as a result, less problematic. But anyway, the point is that there are differences. There are some differences between British and American English, but the vast majority of the time, we can understand each other without any problems at all. And if you're wondering what kind of English that you should learn, which you're probably not wondering, to be honest, because if you're listening to this, then you've probably decided that you like British English. And you're right, of course. You're very wise people indeed. Um, but seriously, um, you can just choose to learn British or American English or a bit of both. In fact, I personally think that it's okay to mix it up a little bit. As long as people understand what you're saying, that's got to be the most important thing. Um, for your learning of English, I would say the main things are that you're able to identify the difference between a British and an American accent and that, that you hear lots of different forms of English. So you don't just expose yourself to uh, received British pronunciation or standard American, that you hear different regional British accents and different regional American accents too, as well as all the other ones like Australia and Ireland and Canada and so on. Uh, so you just need to be able to identify and be familiar with the, the whole um, uh, range of different English voices. Uh, and also, you do need to know the differences in vocabulary. And for more information, first of all, about the differences between UK and US pronunciation, 
You can listen to a previous episode of this podcast that I did on this subject, and that is episode 14 called British and American Pronunciation. Um, so that's the pronunciation. Let's have a look at some vocab, uh, and there'll be more of this as the series continues. Um, so what we're going to do now is look at um, some words relating to driving, okay? Because it seems that um, there are lots of differences in the words that we use to talk about cars, roads, and driving. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. Um, um, so uh, I, I want to know, I want to see, or I want you to see how many of these words you already know. Um, I have done an episode about driving before. That's the one where I drove a car around Paris and I recorded an episode while I was doing it. And I taught you various words for parts of the car and things that you do in cars and stuff. Uh, so you, this might be a good way to jog your memory if you've already listened to that. Uh, what I'm going to do, though, is I'll, I've got how many words? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Unlucky for some. 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 words. Um, and um, what I'm going to do is I'll define the word first. You can try and guess the word. So guess the word from my definition. And now let's see if the word that you come up with is the British one or the American one. Or maybe you, you can guess both. Let's see. So first word is the, f the fuel that you put into the car. Okay, you need this fuel to help the car run. It's the fuel for the car. What is it? Well, in the UK, we call it petrol. And in the USA, they call it gas or gasoline. All right. Now, in the UK, um, and also I think in America too, gas also means, uh, uh, you know, you've got three states, solid, liquid and gas. Like, you know, oxygen is it in the air is a gas. But also gas in the States means gasoline, meaning petrol. So UK petrol, USA gas. Let's have the next one. Where do you, if you fill up your car with fuel, where does the fuel go? Where is the fuel stored in your car? Well, in the UK, it's stored in your petrol tank or fuel tank. And in the States, it's stored in the gas tank, of course. So there you go. Tank is the same. But again, it's basically the difference between petrol and gas there again. OK, let's say you're going to go on holiday, but uh, you're not going to stay in a hotel. You're not going to stay in a tent. You're not going to stay in an apartment. Instead, you're going to drive and you're going to carry your temporary home on the back of the car. So um, usually these things are white and there's a bed in there and there might be a toilet in there and there might be a little kitchen in there and it's got wheels on it. You drive it around and you stop wherever you want and you have your little holiday and you sleep in the in this thing that you're that you're dragging behind the car. In the UK, we call it a caravan, but in the USA, they call it a trailer. Okay, so a trailer in the USA and a caravan in the UK. Um, obviously, in the States, they're trailers tend to be a bit bigger than our caravans, but that's just the States, isn't it? Everything's bigger. So you get these trailer parks in the USA, and that's where they have all these trailers lined up and people live in them. Sometimes trailer parks are, are although they're full of trailers, the trailers rarely move. They're, they are sort of not mobile. And trailer parks are sort of synonymous with very poor places where you get like... Um, 
you know, a low class type of person who lives in a trailer park. So if you hear people talking about trailer trash or trailer parks in American culture, they, they might be talking about poor people who live in trailer parks because they can't afford to live in, you know, higher quality accommodation. In the UK, a caravan is associated with people who like to go on holiday in the UK and they drive with their caravan on the back and they, you know, stay in little holiday resorts on the seaside and stuff like that. Now, um, imagine this. Uh, you're driving on the on the road and there's a big vehicle. Now, what's the name of this big vehicle? It's used to carry um, stuff, all right? Um, let's say it's, it's being used to transport loads of goods from one city to another city. Huge vehicle. There's a guy in the front. He's fat and, you know, he listens to the radio. It's a stereotype, but there it is. And so it's a huge vehicle for carrying lots of uh, goods around, commercial goods. Um, in the UK, we call it a lorry. That's right, a lorry. It's got a cab at the front that fits two or three people. And then at the back, there's a huge um, uh, sort of container. Um, and together, it's called a lorry. And in the USA, they call it a truck. That's right, a truck. So a lorry in the UK, a truck in the UK. Um, now, what about where there is um, a set of uh, traffic lights, um, you know, red, amber, and green traffic lights? So this is where two roads meet each other. It's where you, you might need to turn left or turn right or go straight on. Um, what do you call that? Well, in the UK, we call it a junction. And in the States, of course, it's an intersection. So junction in the UK, intersection in the US. So just go up there. When you get to the junction, turn left or just, you know, just go straight on. When you, go, when you get to the intersection, you're going to take a right, for example. Um, okay, so here's the next word. This is the rubber thing that goes around the wheel of the car, and it's full of air. So it's black, made of rubber, full of air. What's that? Well, to be honest, it's the same word. We call it a tyre in the UK and a tyre uh, in America, but they're spelled differently. So tyre in the UK is T-Y-R-E, tyre, and in the USA is T-I-R-E, a tyre. Okay, um, next is in uh, a city or a town, what do you call the street? It's the street with all the big shops on it. It's in the centre of town or in the centre of the city. For example, Oxford Street is an example of this. What do you call it? Well, in the UK, we call it the High Street. And in the USA, they call it Main Street. There you go. Um, going back to the car again, um, on the front of the car, there's a, a large window. And you need to look through the window in order to see. Um, in my Chevy Camaro that I was driving around, this was very small. I couldn't see very clearly out of it. But it's the main window at the front. Now, in the UK, we call it what? The windscreen. The windscreen. And in the States, it's the windshield. Okay, so the windscreen and the windshield. Um, right, what's the biggest road or the fastest road that you can travel on? Um, in the UK, we've got the M1, the M6, the M25, the M4, for example. We call it the motorway. But in the United States, they call it the freeway or the highway. Okay, for example, um, there is a, um, a, a highway, a famous highway that runs down the coast that runs down the west coast between San Francisco and Los Angeles. They call it Highway 1. Uh, and it's a famous highway that runs, you know, through these famous places like Big Sur and Monterey and so on. Beautiful drive down Highway 1 um, in the UK. Motorway. 
All right. The, the M25 is a famous motorway in the UK. It's hardly uh, the same. You can't really compare it to Highway 1. It's a horrible, miserable motorway that's usually um, got lots of traffic jams on it. Um, so let's see. Um, what about how do you identify a car? If you see an accident or a crime, let's see a bank, let's say a bank robbery and you see people escaping from the scene of the crime in their car, what information do you need to give to the police? Well, you need to give them the 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 number that's written on the front and the back of the car. In the UK, um it's called the um well the the place where the the number is written is called the number plate. And uh in the United States they call it the license plate. What's the um the registration number, we would say? The registration number in the UK and the license plate number or the lic- the uh, the license plate number uh, in the USA. Now, uh, different car parts again. What do you call the front part of the car? Now, again, on the Chevy Camaro that I was driving, this was very long and it was so big that it was difficult for me to see the road. So I had to l- look over this in order to see the road in front of the car. And... Um, so um, if you want to look at the engine, you need to open this. Well, in the UK, we call it the bonnet. And in the States, it's the hood. All right. Um, now, if you're a pedestrian, what do you walk on? This is the, the, uh, the place on the, next to the street where you walk if you're a pedestrian. And in the UK, we call it the pavement. And in the USA, they call it the sidewalk, which is understandable, isn't it? Because you walk on the side. Let's call it the sidewalk. Uh, pavement, well, you, it's paved, you see. It's, mean, it's meaning there are stones, paving stones that are laid down um, and you can walk on them. So it's paved. It's the pavement in the UK, sidewalk in, in America. Um, we had the bonnet or the hood at the front of the car. What about at the back? If you want to put your suitcase in the car, you need to open something. In the UK, we call it the boot. And in America, they call it the trunk. Okay, so I wonder how many of those you've got. And how American is your English? So what was the first word that came to mind? Was it the American version or was it the British version? Let's see how American or how British you are. Um, Okay, so there'll be more British and American English vocabulary in uh, future episodes of this series. Uh, This is basically the end of episode number three at this point. Um, And um, I think that's probably it. What I would like to achieve in uh, the next few episodes is basically what I didn't do in this one. So I had I had um, ambitious aims for this episode, didn't I? I said at the beginning I would talk about Venice Beach. I did that. I was going to talk about Baywatch. I managed to do that. Uh, I was going to talk about segues. I did that. I was going to talk about the grammar of telling stories and anecdotes in English. And I did that too. Um, I was going to tell you some facts about the Hollywood sign. Yes, we got that. I was going to tell you about the Red Hot Chili Peppers a little bit and recommend uh, Anthony Kiedis's book. I think I did that. Um, a British and American English vocabulary relating to driving. Yes, I've done that, but I didn't do the other things I was hoping to do. But that's all right, as I've said, because I can just do it in episode four, can't I? So what you can expect in episode four is not only the continuation of my description of what happened and what we did and what we saw, in uh, the Golden State, but also you're going to get me, you're going to get some stuff about the dark side of Hollywood and celebrity culture. And also we're going to look at some music. We're going to listen to, or at least we're going to check out the lyrics to Hotel California, which is that kind of famous song, which is all about California. It's by the Eagles. 
Um, so that's what you can expect. But then there's loads of other stuff as well that I want to deal with, including uh, our, you know, the part of the story where we go to Yosemite National Park, and that was interesting because there was a we had a complicated situation on the on the mountain there. You can expect to hear about that. Um, and other things like Scientology, um, the our adventure in Yosemite National Park. Uh, what else? What else? What else? What else? Um, um, San Francisco, what, what it's like to be in San Francisco. Um, you're going to hear me talk to you a little bit about some more vocabulary there. Golden Gate Bridge, meeting AJ Hogue, the uh, creator of Effortless English in San Francisco. You're going to hear my interview with him. Um, what else? Earthquake. I'll talk to you about an earthquake that we experienced. I'll tell you a little bit about the history of the hippie movement in San Francisco. Um, I'm going to talk to you um, a little bit about some more books um, and also what else? Some more stuff about customer service and a couple of cases of fairly rude customer service that we experienced while we were there. Um, Some more tips on making a good impression with a waiter. also, some more tips on making small requests in English. Um, we will cover stuff like going to Monterey and seeing uh, lots of wildlife uh, in the ocean. Um, I'm going to tell you about a problem that I had with the rental car and how I made a complaint with Avis. And I'll, I'll give you some advice on making making a complaint effectively. Um, and more vocabulary, more British and American English vocabulary. So that's the kind of thing that you can expect in in, uh, the other episodes of this series. Uh, But for now, I think I'm going to just end the episode. Let's let's have a little bit of that sort of nice Californian style music that we had at the beginning of this episode, just to kind of end in the way that we began. Here we go. Thanks for listening to the podcast. As ever, leave your comments on the pages for these episodes. It's always nice to read your your words. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't keep your thoughts to yourself. Let us know what you're thinking. I'd like to know. And it's a good way for you to practice your English. Thanks again for listening to Luke's English Podcast. I'll be back on your computer or in your headphones very soon. But for now, it's just time for me to say, as ever... Goodbye. Bye, 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 Thanks again for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.